So your pastor just said, don't be afraid to go a little past eight. So nine is a little past eight, isn't it? <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm, I'm very grateful to you for your forbearance. And uh, I know that a lot of the stuff I talked about in the first talk is like very dense. And I'm sorry if it's like slightly overwhelming. Um, what I want to talk about next... Um, I think this might be the most um, personally difficult for some of us here to hear. Um, so I want to pray with that in mind. And I want you to know that uh, I love you in Christ and I'm not trying to hurt you. Right? Um, but sometimes um, uh, the sharpest implements are the ones that do the most good. And I, it may be that one or two people are like, oh my goodness, after this talk, Come talk to me. I'd love to chat with you. Uh, be around tomorrow. Be around Sunday. Um, uh, but I'm, I've been convicted by what I want to share with you now. And I hope that if it will be good for any others here to be, then that will be the case. So let me pray, and then we'll proceed. Merciful Father, you're a loving and gracious God, and we ask that you would show that love and that grace to us by opening our eyes to idols and false ways of thinking that may be in here, in our church, in our hearts and lives. Teach and equip us, we pray, to root out those idols and false thoughts so that we may live lives that flourish more fully and richly in your service. And help us to think with clarity now as we do so. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the subtitle on these nice little flyers for this conference is Critical Social Justice Ideology and Your Church. And you might be forgiven for thinking that's something of an exaggeration. After all, really, come on, this is a communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. And I think, yes, it is the communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. Uh, I didn't suggest the subtitle, Critical Social Justice Ideology in Your Church. It says, and your church. Because what I want to highlight in this talk, and actually the next two tomorrow, is that these false ideologies can affect the church in all kinds of complex ways. Some churches, tragically, have been affected by embracing them. That's a terrible mistake. But they can be affected in other ways. And in this session, I want to highlight the first of them. To summarize... I think I might say it like this. Same psychology, different symptoms. Fleshed out in more detail, I would say this. The rise of woke ideology can be traced not just to Marx and the Frankfurt School and Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, but also to the underlying views of human psychology that made it all possible. And those visions of human psychology may be embraced by and may do damage in places that are not affected by critical social justice ideology. That false psychology might do more damage here. And to introduce... What I have in mind, I want to read a quotation which is now actually becoming quite famous. It's from an excellent book by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Some of you are nodding. It's a very, very good book. I encourage you to get it, to read it. Don't get the dumbed-down, slimmed-down baby version that they brought out six months later because they thought these Christians can't cope with the real thing. Get the big, thick one and um, sit down, as C.S. Lewis would have said, with a pipe between your teeth and a pencil in your hand and work your way through it. It is what Sherlock Holmes would have called a three-pipe problem. Um, It's what I call a five-mugs-of-earl-grey tea problem. But this quotation is really wonderful because it crystallizes a whole range of different ideas. Let me read it to you. Uh, Carl is talking about his grandfather and the issue of job satisfaction job satisfaction. Here's what he says. My grandfather left school at 15 and spent the rest of his working life as a sheet metal worker in a factory in Birmingham, England, the industrial heartland of Britain. If he had been asked if he found satisfaction in his work, 
there is a distinct possibility that he would not have understood the question. Given that it really reflects the concerns of psychological man's world to which he did not belong. But if he did understand, he would probably have answered in terms of whether his work gave him the money to put food on his family's table and shoes on his children's feet. If it did so, then yes, he would have affirmed that his job satisfied him. His needs were those of his family, and in enabling him to meet them, his work gave him satisfaction. That's Carl Truman's granddad. You're not to meet that man. If I am asked the same question, Carl is a university professor, a few years older than me, my instinct is to talk about the pleasure that teaching gives me, about the sense of personal fulfillment I feel when a student learns a new idea or becomes excited about some concept as a result of my classes. The difference between Carl and his granddad is stark. For my grandfather, job satisfaction was empirical, outwardly directed, and unrelated to his psychological state. For members of mine and subsequent generations, the issue of feeling is central. And that's what I'm talking about. Feelings. This is quite a complicated book. It draws on a whole bunch of people, Freud and Rousseau and the Romantics and Marx and a whole bunch of other people, some of whom I'll talk about in a few minutes more briefly than I did last list of complicated people and all the things they wrote. But you see the crucial contrast in what Carl's highlighting between him and his granddad. Two generations. Carl Truman's grandfather looked outward. Most simply, right? My job satisfies me if it allows me to work in the created world. Uh, I can meet the needs of my family. Uh, I've got responsibilities and I can discharge them. I've got a calling, I can do it. But Carl looks inward at my feelings, introspection. And so job satisfaction for Carl's grandfather is all about the outside. C- can I provide for my kids? Does it allow me to do something tangible and come home and wipe the sweat from my brow and yes, I've had a good day? But for Carl and for us, very likely, if I asked you about your job and whether it satisfies you, you would direct your thoughts inward to your emotional and psychological state, to the sense of worth it gives you, to your satisfaction that you feel in doing it, to the sense of value or reward it gives you when you're doing it, all of which are found from looking in at yourself, the feelings I discern in my heart when I think about my job. Now, we have gone through quite a shift, haven't we, in two generations? From an outwardly directed, empirically focused work... Uh, world, sorry, uh, in which a man's work was meaningful on the basis of what happened outside of him to a world in which all of those things arise from the inner recesses of my heart. And that change has been critical for the rise of the critical social justice movement. I think it's very likely, and I'm not alone in this, that if we hadn't had that change in underlying psychology, the critical social justice movement could never have gained the traction that it has. And I want to show you today why I think that's the case. But that same psychological backdrop, which allows critical social justice to flourish out there, causes other problems in here. We might not have embraced critical social justice as an ideology, but boy, are we in danger of the feelings-based personal psychology that we find in the world around us. And it's that that I want to interrogate. I, that's why I gave you the, the brief note and we prayed at the beginning. I think for many of us, this is like trying to talk to a goldfish about water. And when you realize it, it's somewhat overwhelming to realize you might have been living for many years or many decades focused on really what is an idol of your own construction and seeking satisfaction and joy in it. And I I want to, by God's grace, maybe set you free from that. Again, I've got a little sketch, and really a brief one, I promise, of some of the historical background to this, and some of the philosophers, the kind of big names that have got us here. But then I want to basically walk you through five different aspects of life, and show you how this is tearing the world apart, and then say, okay, let's be honest, How might a feelings-dominated culture in the church be doing damage to us? If we can do that, 
before 8 o'clock. <laughs> the Lord is very gracious indeed. He's very gracious anyway, and we'll see how long it takes us. All right, so let's just think about the historical background. And, and this is coming a lot from Carl Truman's book. I'm not going to go into it in detail. Just three major figures, but keep them in your mind because we're going to need them for later. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Heard of him? Swiss philosopher. Who argued, and right at the center of his thought, is the idea that human beings are basically good at heart. They're born good and corrupted by society. We're good by nature, and it's the influences outside of us which make us go bad. That's Jean-Jacques Rousseau's kind of central theme. And therefore, how do you get a person to flourish? Well, you liberate them from the expectations and the norms that are imposed on them by a society outside of them, and you allow them to flourish. Find your inner feelings and explore and express them. You see this, actually, if you've read uh, Rousseau. He's got a book called Confessions, which is obviously uh, picking up on Augustine's Confessions. And just as Augustine talks about an episode when he stole some pears, remember? Um, Rousseau's got a story about stealing asparagus. Sounds bizarre, right? But there the similarity ends. Augustine, when he reflects on stealing the pears, reproaches himself and is examining the the wickedness in his heart that would cause him to steal a bunch of pears that he didn't want anyway. He had better pears at home. They're horrible. What an evil man he must be in his heart to have done that. Rousseau, it's like, oh, my friend made me do it. I was not like that, but I only stole them because of my friend. It's my culture, it's my society, it's what's going on outside of me that made me steal the asparagus from my friend's mum. Really. It's that banal. Which was all brought, secondly, into the mainstream through the Romantics. Whoever reads Rousseau, not me, but Wordsworth, yeah? um, Shelley, Blake, uh, the Romantic poets and other Romantic artists whose work has brought Rousseauian ideas into the mainstream in this way by focusing on your feelings as the the source of what is true and right in the world. Romantic music is similar, isn't it? It's designed to create a certain feeling. Romantic poetry and so on and so forth. And so you combine those two, and basically, by the end of the 19th century, where you are is, or mid-19th century, where you are is... um, In order for human beings to flourish, what they need is to let their emotions and their feelings guide them. Because that's what's true about them. It's the culture that corrupts these innocent-born children. And we need to find the inner feelings-oriented child and follow that. The final ingredient is Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis who kind of, not invented, but developed a mode of counselling that was designed to uncover your deepest feelings. What Freud adds is this. You should not just let your feelings flow. You should go looking for them. You should go find them in your, the deepest recesses of your heart. You might need a professional to help you to go digging around inside you to find out what your feelings are to discover enough about your history to understand what your feelings, and then you'll be able to pursue them. So you can see how these three figures have led to a situation a bit like this. I'm basically good at heart. In particular, my feelings and my desires and my emotions are both morally good and a reliable guide to the way things are, to the truth of things. Human flourishing is about digging deep and uncovering and then following my feelings. It's not, and here's the crucial difference, it's not that I've got to figure out what the world is like so that I can form myself to the world. No. What I've got to do is to figure out what I'm like and then I can jolly well expect the world to conform to me, to my feelings, because my feelings are kind of like sovereign, in effect. My feelings are a guide to the way things really are. Um, uh, Truman picks up another bunch of uh, more recent philosophers. If you've read his um, work, or Charles Taylor, um, that we live in a poetic, not mimetic culture. Poiesis is the process of forming your... seeking to conform, rather, the world to you whereas mimesis, seeking to conform yourself to the world. 
Um, None of this needs to be self-conscious. Again, Charles Taylor um, highlights what he calls the social imaginary, which is a set of what become intuitive ways of thinking about the world that nobody's read Rousseau. Nobody's probably read Freud or Marx and much Wordsworth, Shelley and Blake. But what happens is that these ideas permeate into the mainstream of culture and gradually accumulate in sufficient concentration that the results of them become intuitive to us. So if I ask a 17-year-old, so what would you like to do in your you know, future? They'll start talking about what they feel will give them satisfaction. It's quite rare to find a 17-year-old who will say, well, I'd love to get married, which means I'm going to need to provide for a wife and Lord willing children, and so what I'm thinking is around here the best way to make money fast is X. When did you ever hear a 17 year old say that? Ever? Interesting. Now, like I said, crucially, I want to show you that critical social justice ideology could never have made it into the mainstream without this philosophical, uh, psychological background. It's not just Marx and Frankfurt School and Gramsci, those are the seed, but this is the soil in which it grew. And we're in the same soil, and it's about time we got out of it. And so what I'm going to try and walk you through are five different areas of life, or five different domains of human thought and experience. I want to show you in each case what our feelings-dominated world does in that domain, and then perhaps how we have let feelings dominate in that domain. You ready? First, let's think of something broad, a view of personal identity. Who am I? Who are you? What kind of a person are you? I'm looking at this man here, a husband, a father, a worker, very hard worker, Christian, elder in his church. All these are objective things about this man here. Well, (laughs) In a feelings-dominated world, the way to answer that question is to ask yourself, how do you feel? And so it suddenly becomes plausible to say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. You couldn't say that even 20 years ago. You certainly couldn't say it to Carl Truman's grandfather. I mean, he'd be like, don't look like a woman trapped in a man's body to me, lad. Because Birmingham. <laughs> so you can only do... It's not really a Birmingham accent, was it? It was more a Yorkshire accent, really. It wasn't really a Yorkshire My grandfather was from Yorkshire, so I think grandfather and... Anyway. <laughs> where, where were we? Um, it's only possible because your feelings are morally unquestionable and socially determinative. Yeah, they're everything. It, more examples. Like... Um, In a feelings-dominated world, you can insist on you call me by my pronouns because feelings, if you hurt my feelings, you're attacking my personal identity. Um, Dead naming. You know, you call um, Caitlin Bruce. You're calling somebody by the name that they used to have before they transitioned. That's an act of violence. Why is it an act of violence? It's just calling, it's calling somebody by the name your parents gave, gave you that you've known by for decades. No, you've hurt my feelings. And because my feelings are constitutive of reality, you have acted violently against the fabric of the social order by deadnaming me. That's the claim that is being made in critical social justice ideology. You couldn't do that without this psychological soil in which the seed could grow. So that's out there in the world. Right, what about in the church? Is it possible that our view of who we are is a little too dominated by our feelings? Have you noticed the ease and the intuitiveness with which we ask questions and accept answers from each other about our psychological types. I'm an extrovert. I'm an introvert. 
I'm an intuitive thinker. The, the, the readiness with which we embrace psychological self-diagnosis. I mean, it's made possible in new ways by new systems. Myers-Briggs, type indicator, Enneagram. Ever heard of the Enneagram? Myers-Briggs. Come to Myers-Briggs in a few minutes' time. Um, They're all accessible online. And so part of the issue, on the supply side, so to speak, for you economists out there, part of the issue is there's just it's easier for us to get hold of these analytical tools. And frankly, there's another element, which is just we love talking about ourselves because we're basically narcissistic. But there's a demand side. The demand is stoked by a worldview which encourages us to ask questions about our feelings as though our feelings matter. It's quite interesting, really, when you think about it. I'm an introvert. I'll give you an example. And and this is why I I said what I said at the beginning. I'm not... I don't want to hurt anybody, but I do want to hurt your feelings, right? If I hurt your feelings, I've not hurt you. Think about that for a second, you see? I might have hurt your feelings, but I've not hurt you. I'm trying to help you. Ever, ever said anything like this, okay? I find people difficult. Actually, I find people exhausting. Uh, it's hard to be around people for a long time, um, and so you're having this conversation with your husband, perhaps, and it's like, well, Sunday afternoon, we could have some people over, yeah, but I'm, always, I'm, just, I'm worn out with people by one o'clock in the afternoon. I just need, to, I need some of me time, a bit of me time, any bit of emotional space. I'm a bit tired, a bit overwhelmed. Maybe I'm a kind of introvert. I, I'm not really a people person. You ever found yourself saying that about yourself? How the heck do you know? I mean, what's your standard for self-measurement, for a start? How do you know that what you feel is any different from what the person feels who had you and four other families round to their place on Sunday afternoon last week? How do you know? You have no idea. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. I'm just pointing out the obvious. We have no objective standard for psychological self-analysis, so why do we embrace it? It's true, of course, that you might be weaker in the sense of less able to cope with people than others. But the cause is more likely to be the fact that you haven't done so. Just as you get strong by lifting weights and you remain weak by not doing so, you become stronger psychologically by voluntarily subjecting yourself to things that are psychologically difficult. Right? That's, that's not con- controversial, really, in, at least uh, in the modern psychological literature. It's, just, it's how people treat... The most effective psychological treatment, cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy, for phobias and other forms of anxiety and so on, involves various, among other things, there's a whole bunch of other things that are going on, but includes choosing voluntarily to open yourself up bit by bit to psychologically demanding experiences. And the analogy with physical training is right. If you're like stroke rehab, yeah? I've got a friend who had a stroke a number of years ago, and um, I now see him deadlifting 350 pounds. He had to work up to that. He could have stayed in his wheelchair. You could make yourself weak by embracing that psychological self-description so that it actually becomes true of you. So I'm talking to you now about how do you know that you're so much more anxious and would be so much more stressed on that Sunday afternoon scenario. It might actually be true. And the reason might be that you've spent 20 years telling yourself you can't do it. And the reason you did that is because you thought your feelings mattered. And the reason you thought your feelings mattered is because somebody once gave you a Myers-Briggs test. <laughs> now, <laughs> I can't I don't know where to begin with this stuff. You know, my, the Myers-Briggs test, it's a personality test, okay? And it's routinely panned by every professional psychologist who ever reviews it apart from people who sell it. I mean, and this is not, I'm, look, I looked this up. I'm not making it up. We did it at seminary, and we all kind of knew that this was a bit of a joke, and we, sort of, we didn't really know why, but we went along with it anyway. And basically, the, the way it works is you've got um, uh, four different um, categories, and in each one there's two options, so four times two times two times 16, basically, different personality types. And... Um, so you've got this matrix, and uh, you, the dead giveaway that there's something fishy going on, I, I realized this way back, and, and it's kind of obvious when you think about it, the dead giveaway that there's something fishy going on is that all of the different personality types, all 16 of them, are different versions of some wonderful kind of person. None of them is jerk. 
But, but we all know there are some out there. So where do they fit in? And, and so you look at the different personality types. And like, I'm an ESTJ. Who's that? Right? Extroverted, sensing, thinking, judging. Or narcissist control freaks who want to be the centre of attention all the time. Or I'm an INFP. We had one or two of these at Bible College, I can tell you. Intuitive, sorry, introverted, intuitive, feeling, perceiving. Sounds so gushy, doesn't it? Code for sloppy defeatist who shows up late to every meeting and expects everybody else to read their mind. Why why is it not code for that? The answer is because what's happened is we've removed moral evaluation from the equation and we're making excuses for people's emotional pathologies by putting labels on them and charging them for the privilege. Let's be honest about it. Do you want to grow and change? Or do you want to remain as you are? If your goal is to figure out what you need to repent of, great. If your goal is to excuse your lack of emotional robustness, uh, I, I don't know what to say to you. Oh, wait, I do know. That's a few things I would say to you. <laughs> you. First, you could go and read The Road to Wigan Pier. Has anyone read The Road to Wigan Pier? It's the book, George Orwell, going to find out what it's actually like to be a coal miner in the industrial northeast of England in the early part of the 20th century, where you have to crawl on your hands and knees for two miles through a tunnel, two and a half feet high, to get to work, and then they'll start paying you. And if there's an explosion and you die in the mine, they'll stop paying you at the time of the explosion. Now, people lived like that, and they're made of the same stuff that you and I are made of. We, we, we couldn't do that today, could we? Could we? we? I'm convinced that Britain could not fight the First or Second World Wars now. There's absolutely no way that you'd get 16-year-old boys lying about their age, pretending to be 20 so they could sign up. You get 25-year-olds pretending they got flat feet so they didn't have to. And the proof of that is that's exactly what happened in subsequent conflicts as people got softened up by this therapeutic, feelings-based psychology. And if you're going to tell me that it's nowhere in the church, I don't believe you. Because I was convicted by this. Or maybe, I'm the, maybe it's just in me. That's, it's always possible that your preacher is the greatest sinner among you. It's possible. But statistically, (laughs) it's at least plausible to suggest that there might be some people down here with me. It's all in Rousseau. You can stay there if you like. Second, let's talk about therapy. What's the aim of therapy in a feelings-dominated world? Well, we learned that from Freud, didn't we? Um, if my feelings are determinative of the reality of things, then what therapy is designed to do is to find what my feelings are so that I can then tell everybody else what they need to conform to because that's just the way the world is. So if my feelings are hurt by what you have said or what she might think or what they might be wearing, I need a safe space in my university where my feelings won't be hurt. Because I went to a therapy session and they uncovered these emotional pathologies in me. That's why I'm looking at university age students in Moscow to find if anybody's going to college as a safe space is really like trying to find a needle in a haystack. But you, you recognize the phenomenon, don't you? Trigger warnings, similarly. Because um, you don't want to offend people who, through therapy now know the name for the emotional pathology that you might be prodding by. There was a, a, a college in Scotland, I think it was, where they started putting trigger warnings on the biblical studies lectures when they got to the Passion of Christ. <laughs> what in the world? These university students. Because it's painful and triggering to hear about um, crucifixion. Well, yeah, it is kind of, isn't it? So, so how would this ever be a danger in the church? Well, um, again, understand, I'm not trying to beat anybody up. But when you go to your pastor, what do you say? What do you ask? I, I just 
don't feel my husband understands me. Well, he might not. Like, he might be a complete narcissist control freak who needs to be the center of attention all the time. Um, but you might be a disorganized, sloppy defeatist who shows up late all the time and expects him to read your mind. Now, if both of you are going to let your feelings be your guide, I give your marriage about six months. So what do you do? So of course, of course, there's a way of understanding the phrase, my feelings, which is just my evaluation of the situation I'm in. But are you ready at the point where you express what you feel to Pastor Josh or um, to Pastor Ryan to have them tell you, well, you might just need to repent of that? Because that's just sinful, that feeling. Underlying this is the insistence that we must be ready to change to fit in with what the world is like. Not have the world change to fit in with what we're like. I'm not feeling fulfilled at work. Well, you might just have to suck it up and go to work anyway. I'm not feeling fulfilled as a mother. Well, let me tell you, right? I mean, if you... <laughs> your kid starts crying at um, you know, 2.17 in the morning again for the third night in a row, and this is the third time this night... Um, and let feelings be your guide as to what to do. Well, I'm not feeling fulfilled as a mother. Is there a name for that? Something syndrome, attachment, dis- something disorder? And I'm not denying the reality of the fact that you might actually feel like I'm not really bonding with this noisy, irritating, uh, disruptive non-sleeping, seven-pound screamer that the Lord is... Yeah, it's quite hard to bond with that. And you'll destroy your family if you go to your pastor and expect to sort it out by having the world conform to your feelings. No, no, you've got to conform your feelings to the world. Are you ready to sacrifice for a child who doesn't say thank you? I think, in the end, this actually uncovers problems with some of the ways we understand counselling, period. We, there's actually a danger to think of counselling as a, as a solution. I, I want to encourage people to think of... Counselling is very rarely where you go to get your problems sorted out. Sometimes, very, very rarely, it is the case. Um, if, you've, if you've just lost a child and you want somebody to just remind you of what was it? Explain what you said in that sermon about when David lost his child, born by Bathsheba, and after the child died, he stopped being so worried. What was the grounds for his assurance that he'll see his child again? Your pastor may, in the meeting, be able to give the assurance that you need that you'll see your child again. In those kinds of rare cases, the counselling meeting is the solution. At least it, it's giving you what you need for the solution. But most of the time, it's like a piano teacher. And any piano teachers or music teachers in the house? Yeah, really? In Moscow? I don't believe you. Yeah, you've got one over here. Several. Right. So imagine yourself, you've got a violin student or a piano student, whatever it is, and you give them more. You have your lesson half an hour on Monday. And you, you give them uh, all the things they need to do. You listen to how they played their scales and exercises in this piece. La, 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 la. And you say, okay, great. For next week, what I'd like you to practice is this. Give them some exercises. You say, I'd like you to try the next 32 bars. And what you'd want, I want you to watch whenever you get to this point, you're bowing the wrong direction and your head's whatever it is in the right angle. Okay, so you give them... And then they come back the next week and it's completely the same. No improvement at all. Ever had that? <laughs> um, and you say, well, well, did you do your practice? And they say, well, no. I thought, I mean, I have violin lessons to teach me the violin. Say, no, 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 no. You have violin lessons to tell you what you need to do the rest of the time so that you'll learn the violin. Why do you go to your counsellors, to your pastors? Violin coach. To teach you and show you what you might actually need to practice doing the rest of the time. It's why Jesus' disciples are called disciples, because they're being discipled by him. They don't have a counselling meeting with him, and then he tells them everything, and it's all sorted out. They're with him along the road, because they're having their lives reshaped by him. 
And so your pastors are speaking to you in the name of Jesus and telling you how to reshape your lives as you're walking along the road filled with the Spirit, walking along the road with Jesus. And it is that walking along the road by which you'll be changed. You will not be changed 99 times out of 100 in the counselling meeting. But what your counsellor, what your pastors might be able to do is to tell you what you need to do and pray that God does in you so that when you're living your life day by day, you are able to learn to function better. It was your former pastor, ha, 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 pulling rank on you now, Peter Lightheart, who said something, and I forget exactly what he said. It's like, we've suddenly got this strange idea that it's possible to think your way through life. Was that in Against Christianity? I forget. His point is, no, life is to be lived. You cannot work out what to do in a counselling session, and then it fixes everything. It is like learning to ride a bike, or learning to play the violin, or learning to push weights in the gym. It's, life is lived eschatology. And sometimes you need somebody to correct your technique. Yeah, you're not, yeah you really, we need to rethink that. And then you go away and practice it, and the practice is how you grow. I think we've got a view of therapy, which is a, a bit of a mess, frankly. Right, third, view of relationships. We talked a bit about relationships already, but I want to talk a bit more. In a feelings-dominated world, what is going to happen in your relationships if you feel, uh, there's the clue, upset by something somebody says? Well, it won't matter what they intended. What will matter is your feelings. The technical term for this in contemporary social justice parlance is a microaggression. You heard of microaggressions, right? A microaggression is a a small, subjectively experienced slight or insult on the part of the person who feels hurt. No intention is required in the person who does the hurting. I'll give you an example of this. This happens to me all the time. People come up to me and say, oh, uh, when did you move here from Australia? You know, to an Englishman, an Australian accent sounds like the least cultured accent on the face of the earth. (laughs) Now, they don't mean anything by it. Should I be insulted? Now, if they're wantonly careless, carelessness is potentially morally culpable because we ought to be careful. But sometimes people just make mistakes and, and you get offended. But no, no, microaggression theory states that the magnitude of the offense is in direct proportion to the hurtness of your feelings. doesn't matter what they meant. Right. That's what's happening out there in the world. Good luck with living in a world like that. Right, what happens in the church? How easily we take offense at each other. How? It's why I said what I said at the beginning of the second talk tonight. Because I know, I've seen it in myself, how easily we can be offended by things that weren't meant to be offensive. And there's what, how many, 450 people in this church? I guarantee you stick around here for long enough, somebody's going to say something offensive. That is to say, somebody's going to say something that you perceive to be offensive but was not intended as such. If somebody's being intentionally ungodly, intentionally unkind, that's, obviously that needs to be dealt with in, in all kinds of different ways. But much more of the time, when you feel slighted, or when you feel excluded, or when you feel like, why, why didn't they invite me? Or when, it's much more likely that it was just an accident. Never put down to malice what can easily be attributed to stupidity. <laughs> we, are, we are far more stupid than we are malicious. But really, we could allow this feelings-dominated view of our relationships to tear us apart. In a church this size, well, the Lord's doing something wonderful here that you haven't got Corinthian factions already. Fourth, the sense of victimhood. I want to talk about this for a little bit. Um, Briefly, in a feelings-dominated world, um, when your moral standing is in direct proportion to your membership of an oppressed class, you have an incentive to cultivate victim status. We talked about that a little bit in the first talk tonight, which means you have an incentive to exaggerate feelings of being affronted or being offended or being fearful or being anxious in in a feelings-dominated... And this is what you get all the time uh, with um, the 
imagined slights, an imagined sense of victimhood that people cultivate in order to increase the moral standing that they have in the world, right? So what happens in the church? Have you noticed exactly the same script? Both sides of the media? Let's, let's think about the kind of conservative media world. Just like the progressive left-leaning media world, you look closely at the narrative of news stories in the culture war section. And so often, the way it works is we find a way of portraying somebody who's on our side as the victim. Have you noticed that? Very interesting and very insidious. It's exactly Fox News is no different from MSNBC. They just find a different victim. Right. What about in the church? Um, have you ever seen Christians manufacture a situation in which they can portray themselves as victims of something? Sometimes we are, genuinely. Um, but if you look not very closely at the um, Christian social media engagement script, this is how it's done. It's done by finding a way to portray us as being the embattled minority against the dark forces of secularism. We, sort of, we suddenly forget that Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords and the ruler of uh, all the kings of earth when it becomes rhetorically convenient for us to do so. Like, what happened to post-millennialism ever in circumstances like that? We pick it up in the church, and, you know, there's, there's actually one helpful way of resisting this. I, I, there's, there's some light in the darkness here. How can you, how can you um, avoid cultivating a false sense of victimhood? I'll tell you, there's a really easy way. Find somebody who's really a victim. And take a good hard look at them. Example, this was so striking, not just to me, but to a lot of other guys. At the last CREC council meeting, we're having this debate. It's at the Church of the Redeemer in Monroe, Louisiana. Okay, it's great, wonderful church. All my, all my friends were there. It's just fantastic. Not all my friends. Lots of my friends were there, all uh, trying to concentrate on the council meeting. And the debate that was, being, uh, that, that was taking place was um, what responsibility the presiding minister of council has for issuing statements on various topics at various points. Now, you know, the presiding minister at the moment, Pastor Virgil Hurt, uh, uh, has the right and the the mandate to speak on behalf of the denomination. But he doesn't want to do it all the time. It's like every little leaf that falls, he needs to make a statement. So here's the question. On what kinds of issues should he make a statement? He made a statement after Obergefell. Presiding minister made a statement. After one time during COVID, they made a statement. So we're having this conversation. And some people are saying we should have more of these statements. And some people are saying they're getting a bit more frequent. Maybe we're starting to see... We need to make a statement where we don't really need to. And all the time, on the big screen, is the, the, the contingent of representatives from Ukraine, Japan, and Eastern Europe. And at one point, one of the pastors in there said, excuse me, if Russia invades Ukraine, will the CREC make a statement? Can you see? Uh, just so you know, a couple of days ago, one of our pastors in Riven, Ukraine, Pastor Yuri Lishchinsky, pardon me, I'm mauling his name, Yuri Lishchinsky, I think that's his, how to pronounce it, he was conscripted. He won't be pastoring his church for a while. He's going to fight uh, the Russian invasion, just so you know. Fifth, finally, uh, our view of work. This actually is where I was blessed by a men's discipleship breakfast at All Saints in Fort Worth a number of months ago, we interviewed a couple of men um, uh, who, between them, are responsible for hundreds of employees at the, the two companies that they work for. Um, and uh, I wanted to talk to them about how they had found a development, well, lots of things, actually, but one of the things we talked about was people's developing attitudes to their work as they're seeking employment. And one of them said, it's very interesting, People nowadays will seek a job and they'll, in the interview, they'll say things like, I'm looking for a place where I feel valued. <laughs> and I don't want to tell you his name, but he, he said, look, uh, we sell steel products. <laughs> uh, 
our customers don't care about your feelings. Do you think you could operate this $3 million saw to chop our steel girders into smaller pieces or not? I, it was actually really interesting. I, I, I decided to do this experiment on myself because what I wanted to do was I wanted to see, going back to um, uh, Truman's granddad again, I wanted to see what happens if you're working and you start looking at, at your feelings. So I've got to tell you, right? I love my work. I absolutely love my work. Um, I can't believe I get to do this and it counts as work, actually. I, get, you know, this, I do this for money. Some people pay to do what I do. I, I love everything that I do. But I, this, I was doing some of this preparation for a sermon on uh, Friday morning, last Friday, and I stopped. And I was really in the zone, piles of books everywhere, trying to figure out what it's all about. Um, and I stopped and I thought, right, I'm going to examine my feelings. How do I feel right now? And I felt immediately slightly lost. I felt slightly empty. Like, what am I doing here? Um, I felt a bit uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable. I've got this weird pain in my left elbow. I don't know what that is. It's been clicking. I've got a pain in the small of my back. I don't know what that is because I heard the crunch when I was trying to lift too much weight the other week. I'm not doing that anymore. My, my thoughts moved to what I was doing later in the day and I started to feel slightly overwhelmed. I'd got two appointments, one at lunchtime, one shortly thereafter, and it was wonderful talking to those guys, but when you're trying to prep a sermon, it's like, that's time out of the day, and I, when am I going to get all this done, and then I've got to go to Moscow next week, and oh my goodness. What? And then I started, the more I examined my feelings, and then, I, I promise you, these words popped into my head, unbidden, I wonder if I'm depressed. <laughs> Two minutes ago, I was in the zone, loving the feeling of being totally absorbed in what I was doing. The very worst thing that could have been done for me at that moment would be for some well-meaning psychologist to walk in the room and say, let's talk about your feelings. Let's write them all down. I'd have been prescribed a truckload of something and told to take six months off work. Now, here's the problem. Um, some people need a truckload of something. Like the, the fact that we might all be faking a twisted ankle doesn't mean that some people don't ever break their legs. And the problem, actually, is that we diminish and undermine the seriousness of actual psychological suffering by imagining that it's so common. I think at the seminary I trained at, going back nearly 20 years, 50% of the wives were on antidepressants. And you wonder, is it that they didn't need them, but the psychologist had walked into the room at the wrong time, or is it that they did need them because they had been so emotionally pathologized by looking at their feelings for so long that they actually were that fragile. I don't know which it is, but I don't want either for anybody I love. And we cannot avoid that if we are going to let feelings be our guide. So what's the alternative? Okay. So I'm sitting there at my desk, like, <laughs> get back into it. And I said this at church last Sunday, because this was sort of relevant to what I was preaching. Stuff your feelings. Who cares about your feelings? Now, I need to nuance that now, because you all think I don't love you. Um, I do care about your feelings very much, but I promise you, you cannot feel joy, you cannot feel fulfillment, you cannot feel satisfaction by pursuing joy or fulfillment or satisfaction. You've all read C.S. Lewis. Remember what he says? Joy bursts into our lives when we go about doing the good at hand and not trying to manipulate things and times to achieve joy. You all read that. Yes? Joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and a sense of belonging in the world where God has placed us does not come, cannot ever come by looking for those things in ourselves. There's a technical philosophical error. It's the fallacy of reification. We're trying to find a thing that isn't a thing. It can only be found in other things. But there's also theological error all over the place. It is to fail to realize that, Gerald Manley Hopkins, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Everything is... This is not now Hopkins, this is me. Everything is blazing with divine wonder and perfection. All... Things 
or activities or lawful activities. And as we immerse ourselves in those things, we will find shimmering reminiscences of the creator. What's it? Calvin says, there is not one atom in all the world that in which there is not some particle of his glory, something like that. Somebody will correct that quotation, but that's the gist of it. And then Barvink quotes that, like he agrees with it. Like, my goodness. There's a great book by Cal Newport. I forget which one it is because I've read a half dozen of his. Um, he tells the um, uh, narrative about uh, a man who f- makes swords. He starts with a block of steel about this big, six inches long, two inches wide, an inch thick, and he basically hammers it for eight hours, ten hours, heating it, hammering it. He makes these beautiful, long swords. Tens of thousands of hammer strokes. If one of them goes wrong, the whole thing is ruined. He has to be completely absorbed in his work. And it's just fascinating. He, he tells a story of a man who just loves what he does. Because he's, so, he's found joy in something that God has made. What he does is he bashes a piece of metal. Like, pause for a moment and examine your feelings. No, don't do that. You'd do something else with the hammer. Can you see it's just this bizarre situation where we are in this mundaneness in which is unspeakable glory. I'm sitting there, and this is back to my peculiar vocation, sitting there drowning in paper and books and tapping on a screen, like on a, on a keyboard and words appearing on a screen. It's meaningless tapping and... De- And yet, to lose oneself in it is to find the significance that God has placed in everything. And it's magnificent. What a tragedy to have our view of God's glorious world shattered because we're too busy looking inside ourselves at our feelings. We're doing Bible study. I want to finish with this. We're doing Bible study last uh, Wednesday night in Ecclesiastes 9. And you know Ecclesiastes 9... He's sort of thinking about death and all kind of happy things like that for the first six verses. And he says, um, uh, you get this massive disjunction at the end of verse six, and it's like, okay, he's now going to give us the solution to his musings. What is the solution to the inevitable uh, fall of the sword of... No, it's not Damocles. Just the ending of human existence as we await the resurrection. What is the solution? Go, which is really interesting. Go, as in do something. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no thought or wisdom or work or knowledge in shale to which you're going. Stuff your feelings and get to work embracing with passion what the Lord has given you to do and you will find joy in the Lord there. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we ask that you would liberate us from this foolishness which has become the soil in which this destructive ideology grows and which may be harming us in untold ways. And we pray that we would find those feelings of joy and satisfaction and being valued and loving what we do, not by searching within ourselves for them, but by joyfully embracing the world in which you've placed us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.